hundreds of stories. At the bottom, it tells one big epic narrative that makes sense. It's comprehensible, and it's also comprehensive. It covers all kinds of things. And tonight, we finish the story. We're at the very end of the story. And uh, whenever you really invest in yourself in a story, whether you're reading story or watching a TV series or a movie, you're always hoping the end is good. A bad ending can ruin the whole story. And there are things that make endings good or bad. And uh, what we want in a good ending is resolution. We want something that resolves the conflict, uh, the conflict that drove the narrative. We want it to make sense, a resolution that makes sense. We want, we want it to be realistic. We don't want an ending that's out of character with the characters. We don't want an ending that doesn't make sense with the overall ethos or character of the show. But we don't want an ending that rings shallow or hollow after you've gotten to know all these people and they do something fantastic that you would never expect. We want it to be realistic. And lastly, this is sort of extra credit, what makes an extra good ending. An extra good ending is one that will leave you not only with resolution and it's realistic, but it'll end in such a way that it perhaps sheds more light on the characters. It helps you see maybe the characters and the story in a new way you hadn't thought of. And it will leave you wanting more. That's a good ending. And what we have here tonight is a good ending. The Bible offers us a remarkable ending that's realistic, it offers resolution, and it opens up uh, new vistas for us of seeing God and the world and the way we could live our lives. The text tonight is a long one. It's a long one and a heady one. This, uh, this kind of literature, this genre is called apocalyptic literature, and it, and it proceeds by imagery. So uh, strap yourselves in and do your best to follow, and then I'll do my best to explain what I think is going on here. Okay? So starting in verse 1 of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. He was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues and spoke to me saying, Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, at the gates twelve angels, on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates, and on the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names 
of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. He measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and height and width are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Explain that one to me. The wall was built of jasper. The city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. Jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, carnelian, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, chrysophase, or chrysoprase, uh, jacinth, and the twelfth being amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the twelve gates made of a single pearl. The street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. I saw no temple in the city. Its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anything, anyone who does what's detestable or false, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. All right. Let's pray. A good father, this is indeed deep, heavy stuff and heady stuff and uh, stuff that's hard to understand. So we pray that you would show us wonderful things in your word, that you would show us yourself and uh, your goodness. And we pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. One of the uh, peculiar joys of my job is that I get to do weddings. And last year I did a lot of them. I did six. I love doing weddings because I look good. Not in the center of attention. Actually, I do look good, and I am in the center, but no one even sees me. That's the way it is in the, as a pastor in the wedding. I've actually had people at the weddings that I attend say, "You were there," and I was like, "I was in the front, in between the bride and the groom the whole time. <laughs> you saw me, but you didn't see me uh, because they're so locked in on the bride and the groom, as it should be." Uh, Almost all weddings are good, and this is a good, this is a good story, and it's going to come around. But I need to tell you a couple things about the story. This is a hard story, and I had permission to share it. Okay? So last year, before my first wedding of the summer, I got a phone call um, from the groom-to-be. The phone call didn't make much sense. Um, the reception was bad, and uh, he was hurried, and he was confused, and he was upset. And I, I knew enough from the phone call to know that his dad and mom had been in a serious motorcycle accident. That's all I knew. And uh, I, I returned home, I left my wife and kids, and I rushed to the hospital, Presby, because I thought there would be someone there. And I ran into his younger brother, Brad. And uh, younger sister, Danielle, who's not here tonight. And uh, I found out the, the nature of the bad news, that, uh, that their father had lost his lower right leg and that their mom might as well 
at that point, uh, we didn't quite know. And um, as you might expect, uh, when your parents are in this kind of situation, uh, Brad and Jared and Danielle were confused and sad and struggling with grief and anger, and uh, I was there with them, uh, struggling as well. Uh, the next few weeks were hard for them, very hard for them. I don't feel like I have the right to even talk about how hard it was for them uh, as, as they uh, helped their parents transition into therapy and then back to home. But, but one thing uh, kept moving their parents along, which was this wedding. This wedding was going to happen, and they were determined it was going to happen. They had this wedding to look forward to, and they didn't really know how they were going to do it. In fact, the day of the wedding, as I'm talking to them, <laughs> like 20 minutes before the wedding, they weren't still sure how they were going to do it. But they were going to do it. They were determined. Um, we live in a world that's filled with pain. We do. Suffering, anger, confusion. You don't have to look far to find the evidence. 70 students killed today in a school in Kenya. Uh, we're surrounded by suffering. We have friends dying far too early. We have parents that are sick and dying unexpectedly. And all the while, we struggle along, suffering with them, confused and angry with this persistent sense that this is not the way things are supposed to be. It should not be this way. And we desperately long for all the brokenness to be swallowed up by the beauty. That's what we want. We want the brokenness to be swallowed up by the beauty. Because the world is a beautiful place, but it's a broken place. And we're going to see tonight, in the midst of all the brokenness and the suffering and the anger and the confusion, that there's a wedding to look forward to. There's a wedding to look forward to. And that God is determined to make it happen. He's determined to make it happen. So uh, the story that we've been studying all semester ends with a wedding. It ends with a wedding and with the restoration of all things. What we're talking tonight, uh, about tonight depends on sort of where you're coming from. If you don't have much of a background in the church, we're talking about perhaps the apocalypse. <laughs> if you have a background in the church, depending on what church you came from, we're talking about heaven or glorification. Um, but we're talking about the end of the story. And in our text, we're going to see, a, we, we can't talk about it all, it's really complicated, but we're going to see three main things coming out of this text. The renewal of all things, the reintegration, I'm rolling my eyes at myself for using that word, the reintegration of lost things, and the reunion of loved ones. Okay? So the first thing we see is the renewal of all things. And uh, this will be our shortest point. The second one will be a little bit longer. And you, you see it right at the beginning in verse 1, chapter 21, verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first one that passed away, the sea was no more. Okay, you see something new and the old is gone. And there seems to be this gap. Like, what happened to it? <laughs> Where did it go? Uh, I feel like I'm missing some kind of cataclysmic explanation. What happened? Where did it go? And it leaves all kinds of questions. And, and the main question I have is, in what way is it new? If there's a new heaven and a new earth, how is it new? What made it new and how new is it? Is it completely new? Is there continuity? Is there discontinuity? And to give you an illustration, you probably had this conversation, or you will have this conversation with someone. 
I present to you for your consideration the new used car talk. Your friend has bought a new car. I bought a new car. That's great, man. And you're anticipating the sexy new car. So what kind of new car did you get? I bought a, I bought a 2006 Mazda 6. Okay. How many miles? 167,000 miles on it. <laughs> and they sent your disappointment. It's new to me. They say it's new to me. Um, so, and, and that's new. It is. It's new to you. But it's not new. Is that what we're talking about? Is this something that's new to me but not new? Or is it something completely new? You talk to your friend. This person came to Pitt because they didn't want to go to Harvard and study and their parents have connections. And uh, they get a new car and you ask them, uh, what, what, what kind of car did you get? I got the new 2017 Toyota Soy. The, the what? The 2017 Toyota Soy. What in the world is that? It's this new biomechanical car. It runs off soybeans. It gets 200 and it gets 285 kilometers per soybean. Like, like, are we talking about a car? Like you're asking, like, are we still talking about cars? Like it's so new, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever, right? Like, and that's the way we're sort of confronted here. Like, what do you mean by new? Is it some new that we're familiar with? Or is it something so new I have no idea what you're talking about? And um, I think what we see in our text is that we're actually talking about something more like the latter. Something that's somewhat familiar. It'll be different, but it'll be familiar. In verse 5, uh, we see this one who's sitting on the throne saying, Behold, I'm making all things new. And those all things are old things. We already have the language of creation in verse 1. The heavens and the earth. That's how God began the Bible. That's how we started our story way back 12 weeks ago. God created the heavens and the earth. And now he's doing it again. Makes me think he's recreating. This is a new creation, not something that's not a creation. So uh, he's taking something old and making it new. But I think we have something else in our text that helps us figure out what kind of world this is supposed to be like. And it's the person of Jesus in this text. Uh, Jesus is referred to in this text three times, but not by the name Jesus. He's called the Lamb. We talked about this a little bit last week. It's a little strange that he'd be called a Lamb. Uh, he had a name. He's the Son of God. Uh, but he's called the Lamb because that was the role he fulfilled as a priest. He came and died for the sins of his people. And now he's called the Lamb. Now this is the end of the book. This is glory. This is heaven. This is when everything's done. And Jesus, the Son of God, is still being called the Lamb. And I think he's still called that because like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Jesus in his resurrected body, when he appeared to his disciples, he bore the marks of his death. He bore the wounds of his death. That is, Jesus who was a human and God died. And when he came back, he was still very much the same. He ate food. He had scars. He had a body. And he was very much different. He had a strange relationship with walls, for instance. He like went through doors and showed up wherever he wanted to. Continuity, I eat food, I have scars. Discontinuity, but I'm not like you. And I think that's sort of what we have here. It's really hard for us to imagine exactly what it's going to be like. I think we think often... Purely spiritual, ethereal, harps, fat babies, and I don't know. Um, and some of that, for us, that's so ridiculous, we can't give it any credence whatsoever. I think the picture here is something like this, completely made new and, uh, and wonderful. 
So uh, the overall story of the Bible is that God created the world good and he loved it and he never gave up on it. He never gave up on his creation. He doesn't hate the creation. And uh, he's not getting rid of the creation at the end. He's going to redeem it. He's going to restore it. And, uh, and that's good. And that's important for us. It means your work matters. It means your body matters. It means art matters. It means the environment matters. God hasn't given up on it. You shouldn't either. Uh, but I want to move on to the next point. Uh, God's not only going to renew everything, He's going to reintegrate the lost things. I apologize for using reintegration. I feel like I shouldn't use reintegration. Five syllable words as main points. Um, but I couldn't think of a better one. So if you think of a better one while I'm doing this, let me know. Uh, God not only fixes the broken things and renews them, what he's going to do is take apart all the things that fell apart, take them and put them back together. When we started the series way back 13 weeks ago, I I talked about how God in the garden, uh, and whether you think that's a myth or a story, I, I think it's true, but I can understand why you would think it's a myth. God created the world in such a way that everything in life fit together well. That man enjoyed this perfect enmeshment, this integration of personhood and purpose and place. And we don't experience that anymore. That's why we're so frustrated. And what we see here in God renewing all things is putting these things back together, reintegrating them. Place and purpose and uh, personhood. But let's look at each one a little bit. Uh, How are we described as people? In verse 2... Uh, this is a bit strange. Stay with me. Uh, we're described as, we, we see this holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down. Prepared as a bride. That's verse 9. It's a city that's beautiful. And the city is described in great detail. The measurements, the symmetry, the size, the glory, the beauty, and the bride. And these metaphors are being mixed on purpose. Uh, God is describing his people and their symmetry, and their beauty, their extravagance. And what he's doing here is he's taking his people, that is, you, and saying, when you think about yourself, you tend to think about yourself either very greatly, I'm wonderful, or you think about all your guilt and shame and shortfallings, all the ways that you're not the way you're supposed to be. But God here is saying, this is what you're going to be like, made perfect, made glorious. As verse 11 puts it, uh, the holy city coming down out of heaven having the glory of God. That, that is, it's God's determined will to make his people as perfect and beautiful. And the word glory means significant, heavy. As heavy as himself. It's pretty impressive. And if you're a cynical person like I am, you might think, well, maybe this is one of those beauties in the eye of the beholder things. You know, you know I'm at the wedding and everyone's like, she was such a beautiful bride. And I'm thinking, well, nah. Maybe not. <laughs> not really seeing it. You know, beauty, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Uh, so maybe you saw it, but I didn't. And maybe you're thinking like, well, maybe God just really loves his people and can't see how screwed up and messed up they are. Uh, no, God knows perfectly well how screwed up and messed up his people are. The point is not that. The point is that he makes them this beautiful. He's determined to make them beautiful like himself and his own son. Uh, So that's person. We are completely, if you're in Jesus, completely glorified is the word. That's a very interesting verb. Um, Then we talk about place. We we have place being described in verses 3 and 4. The dwelling place of God is with man. 
uh, in their original home back in Genesis 1 and 2 when God created the world. He gave us a garden. He created a world that was well suited for us and uh, put us in a garden and gave us a job. We'll talk about the job. But this garden was great. It was our home. And, uh, and we were made for place. Really, as humans, we are made for place. We like place. Um, and it's important to us. And we often feel homeless and discontent in our place. And, and we have here this promise that uh, God has a place for us. Um, and it's an upgrade. We had a wonderful garden to begin with. And we were expelled because we were rebellious sons and didn't want to play by the house rules. Um, and we didn't come back, but God came searching after us to bring us home. In the first garden, God would visit. Here, God seems to move in. The dwelling place of God is with man. He moves in. Permanent resident. You live with God. And uh, there's some familiar things as well. Again, that whole, how new is this thing? There's some familiar things uh, in the story. You read all the way over in chapter 22 that this place has the river of life and the tree of life. These are things from the first story. Uh, they have important roles in the story. We'll talk about them in a moment. But it means there'll be some familiarity. This will feel like home. And uh, that's important, that it will feel like home. But for some of you, when I say feel like home, you think, I don't want it to feel like home. Home sucks. I don't want to go home. When I think home, I think of shame. And I think of hurt. And I think of failure and pressure and fights. And I think of hiding Home was supposed to be the safe place, and instead it was a place of hurt. And I don't want to go there. It's left me with scars. That might not be all of your stories. That's some of your stories for sure. That's the story of a lot of people. And God seems to know this, because in this home, He's provided for this. He's provided for the healing of people. Chapter 22, this is really interesting. Verse 2, at the very end, The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Everyone enters this home broken. Everyone enters this home with scars. Things you've done to yourself by your sin. Things that others have done to you. The effects of living in a world full of suffering. We all enter with scars and God heals us. And we live in a home, chapter 21, verse 4, where God wipes away every tear. Death shall be no more, no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. That's the world we feel like we should live in. A a, a place where uh, things aren't like this. And this text promises us that one day it won't be like this. Lastly, purpose. I'll do this one really quickly. We were were created to work. In In the garden we were given the job of cultivating and creating and taking God's blessing in the garden and spreading it to the world. I talked about this at length. I think it's pretty important. We think of work as a curse sometimes. No, we're supposed to work. We were given a great job to take the good thing God had made and extend it to the world. I mean, it's amazing. That's a pretty big responsibility. And all I'm saying is God enabled you and equipped you to do it. And now you can't manage your calendar, and you can't go to class, and you wonder if you're going to fill your classes or not. And you're like, I'm not saying you're not great. You are great. But I'm saying our work has been frustrated. And, uh, and often in the Bible it's called vanity. We, we do all this work, and at the end of it we wonder, is it really worth it? And uh, perhaps you, you look at the story and say, well, I'm free from work. No, you're not. It, it, it's the work the way it's supposed to be. You, you get to work again in the new creation like you're supposed to. You worship God because you want to. 
And the end of verse uh, 5, chapter 22, you reign forever. That's a job. It's a responsibility. You're called to do the same thing here that you're called to do all the way to the beginning, which is to be in charge under God's care. You have some significant responsibilities. Like, I think you would hear a reign forever and you think, I don't have to do anything. No, no, no. These are significant responsibilities. You will be in charge of something. That's what God made you for. You want to do good work. You want purpose and significance. God's going to give it to you. And when you put all this together, that God makes you the person you are supposed to be, and puts you in the place where you want to do, where you want to be, and gives you the job that you want to do, you have it all come together. We're always frustrated in life because these things don't come together. Here, God puts them together. I don't use Lord of the Rings illustrations couple reasons. I don't want to be mistaken for a Lord of the Rings nerd. I'm not one. I appreciate, I read the books. I like the movies. I watched the movies one time. I watched them once, not ten times. Yeah. That's, that's not a I, I know. And secondly, I don't want to use illustrations because then when I mispronounce some minor elf's name, the Lord of the Rings <laughs> nerds will jump all over me. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> But some illustrations are just too good to neglect, and this is one of them. Uh, at the end of the last book, and this is in the movie, um, Frodo has completed his task. Uh, the ring is being cast into the volcanic mess that is Mount Doom, and uh, the, the ring is destroyed. Mount Doom is in. It is Mount Doom, right? Yes. I'm really not. Thank you. I'm not a nerd. Uh, I'm not a nerd. Uh, the, the, the mountain is imploding uh, around Sam and Frodo. Uh, and they escape, to, uh, it's, not, it's barely escaped, to this rocky crag, this outcrop, uh, amidst all this boiling volcanic mess. And then they're going to die there. Frodo collapsing uh, on his back says, I can see the Shire. He's thinking about home. I, I see the river. I see Gandalf's fireworks, the lights, the tree. And Sam uh, Gamgee, his friend, begins to cry and lament all the things in life that he's going to miss. They expect to die. I'm going to miss marrying this girl that I love. And uh, I'm not crying. I'm itching. And um, uh, I'll cry later. Okay. Um, And um, Frodo draws near to him to comfort him and gives him a hug and says, I'm so glad to be with you, Sam Wise, here at the end of all things. It's important that he says that because he thinks they're going to die. They think this is the end of everything. And then the movie, blackness closes in and it's dark uh, until they're rescued. Sam awakens. He thinks it's all been a dream until he notices that uh, Frodo's missing a finger. And he hears Gandalf's voice. And uh, he thinks Gandalf is dead. He's thought so for a long time. And at last he speaks and he gasps, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But I thought I was dead too. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? It's a beautiful line. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And in the movie, and in the book, uh, Gandalf falls into this deep laughter that sounds like music, that sounds like water in a parched land. And Sam bursts into tears. Uh, the promise of this text is that all the sad things come untrue. That God fixes all the broken things and puts them back together. My personhood, which is not what it should be. My lost sense of home. My, uh, my purpose. He restores it the way it's supposed to be. 
One last thing to talk about. This will be quick. So, renewal of all things, reintegration of lost things, last, the reunion of loved ones. What we have here is a homecoming. In verse 3, we hear a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. See, this is what God has wanted from the very beginning. This was his desire from the very beginning. To have people with him in the garden, in this world, living in relationship with him, doing good work, extending his blessing into the world. That was his desire. That's not what we wanted. And so we rebelled, decided to live things our own way. We did not pursue God. God pursued us. That's the story of the Bible. God promises he's going to chase us down from Genesis 3, and he does it. He does it over years, millennia, through prophets, through teachers, and lastly through his own son. He sends his own son to bring his sons and daughters back. And here in verse 3, at last, it's a reality. They're mine. I'm with them. They're with me. I'm their God. They're my people. My children have come home. And they come home because of what Jesus has done. Through the Lamb. Again, he's all over this text. He's called, again, the Lamb. The Son who died for us. You look at this text, and it's it's hard to understand, but it's a beautiful wedding text. You have the groom, Jesus, and the bride, his people, together, the way it's supposed to be. Only, the groom looks like he's been nailed to a cross, which he has. It's amazing. It's beautiful. That's what he did to make the wedding possible. That's what he did to bring us there. That's what he did to make us right with the Father, to bring us to himself, to bring us to glory. And uh, this is the faith. This is the story. God has chased us down throughout history, chased us down with his son, and at the end, it ends with a wedding. It's pretty wonderful. Uh, You may be asking, how do I get in on this? (laughs) How do I get in on this story? Um, It's the son. You latch on to the Son. You trust in the Son. You're loyal to the Son. And He will bring you all the way through to this. That's what He promised. Uh, I want to go back to the wedding day. What I also, as a pastor, call game day. It's game day for me. Game's on, man. And um, uh, I'll take you behind the scenes a little bit. When you're a pastor doing weddings, it's different than me for everybody else. Um... And while you're taking your seat, uh, I am running off to the bridesmaids and to the bride to make sure they're okay, to make sure no one ran away, <laughs> and uh, to pray with them. And then I come back to the groom and the groomsmen to make sure they're okay, and I pray with them and make sure their flies up because you don't want to get you don't want to get married with your fly down. And um, sort of serious. And um, you're thinking about all these things. And uh, at the same time, you have in your head timing. Timing is important in a wedding. Um, so if you've been to a wedding you, and you're not participating in the service, you come in and they, sit, they seat you, and everyone seats. And the wedding officially starts with the seating of the grandparents. And uh, no one really pays attention to the seating of the grandparents. The way it typically works is it increases in drama. Okay, Seat the grandparents, seat the mom, dad's following behind. And then the guys come in. 
man, that pastor looks good. He looks their place. And then, uh, and then you look to see if the groom looks good, but you don't really care about the groom. Actually, you don't really care about the groom that much. Uh, and the bridesmaids start coming down, and the bride comes down, and everyone stands and focuses on the bride, and that's the way it should be. That's what this text does. Really, that's what this text does. This text, God says, let me show you the bride. Jesus loves his people. This text is about how much God loves his people. It's amazing. Well, I'm not going to say this didn't happen during that wedding. Uh, Britta Anderson Campbell was beautiful and amazing. Um, but I will say things were a little different. So I always, uh, always sort of peek out the door to see how things are going and where things are in the service. Um, so I know where timing is. But uh, I couldn't look. I didn't want to look because um, I knew that uh, this mom and dad were I actually don't know how they got down wheelchair? I don't know crutches? how did they get down? crutches? yeah I, was, I remember your dad being pretty determined he was going to crutch down so they crutched down and uh, from what I heard in the congregation that was sort of the emotional climax of the entire service uh, the place was choked with emotion and um I didn't look because I didn't, I didn't want to look, and neither did Brad, and neither did Jared. And it's not because it was too broken. Like, it's not because of the brokenness that we didn't look. I've seen broken things before. I've seen much worse broken things. The broken things wouldn't have hurt me emotionally. It was the beauty. It was the brokenness being swallowed up in the beauty. I knew that would get me. Like it's getting me right now. <laughs> and you can't officiate a wedding like this. <laughs> so I didn't look. I didn't look. I wish I could look now. I wish I could go. Is this on camera? I wish I could look now. This is what I want you to do. I want you to look. I want you to look in on the wedding. You can do it right now. You can look in at the broken one. It's the, bro- it's the, it's the groom. The one that was broken for you. And you can see his love for you. I want you to look in on the wedding. Take a peek. This is what awaits us. This is a remarkable story. It's a remarkable ending. This is what God has for us. And it is good. All right. Let's pray together.